I'm a man of habits. All right, well, we are continuing in our Truth and Love series today. Uh, if, you were, if you've been with us for a while, you know our previous series. We went, a lot, uh, went through a lot of truth when we went through our statement of faith. And so uh, for me, I love learning about things, but I even more love to learn how to apply them and how to use them to live my life. But uh, I have a question here that I'm confident can actually span the generations that may be present here. What is your favorite portrayal of Sherlock Holmes? Your favorite portrayal of Sherlock There's like 15 different ones, whether it be a show, a movie, if you had a favorite actor or a favorite version of that. Uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, all right. I don't think there's a VeggieTales one, or that might, that might be up there. There, was, there is a VeggieTales, Sherlock? Look at that. I, know, I didn't get to watch any good cartoons growing up, so. Uh, Nola Holmes. I think I did see something about that. So my favorite, personal favorite, is the BBC one with, uh, and I love this guy's name because you could totally mess it up and you know who I'm talking about. If I say Bernard Cumberland, you know exactly who I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, see, you're, you're already correcting me. It's Cumberbatch. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. It's, it's a great name because you could butcher it, and everybody knows who you're talking about still. Benedict Cumberbatch. He does, a, does one for the BBC. It's my favorite version of Sherlock. Uh, there's a lot of different Sherlock Holmes. Uh, most of you have seen at least one version of Sherlock Holmes in one form or another. They go back many, 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 many years. Uh, and so I'm confident you've all seen, at least had some exposure to Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but what powers of observation is Sherlock Holmes famous for? That's right. Deductive reasoning. That's deductive reasoning through observation is what he's known for. He's not like magical. He doesn't have magical abilities. He's just hyper observant and very gifted at deductive reasoning. Uh, in the third chapter of First John, which we've been in, hopefully you've been reading that this week, we see John using a very simplified version of deductive reasoning and observation. He uses these to distinguish between the children of God and those who are not. It's a pretty basic, simple, uh, deductive reasoning set, but he, what he does is he uses information which is already there. He uses things that are already present to come to a conclusion, which is what Sherlock does. He sees everything around him. He sees the minutia that everybody else overlooks, and he makes uh, huge, sol solves huge cases because of it, or he knows what's, well, you know, where someone's at in life. And so uh, in First John chapter 3, we see a similar thing, is that you observe... And you can be pretty confident as to whether or not someone is a child of God or they are not. Uh, so let's kick it off. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. First, I, I don't know, hopefully, I do want to reiterate this. Every day this week, I encourage you, well, actually, uh, it's going to be a couple of weeks before we pick up chapter three again, but be reading the chapter throughout the week. It will make it come alive to you so much more than just hearing it on a Sunday morning. 
But if you did, and as you're reading this, I don't know if you stopped and paused for just a moment this week to grasp the love of the Father here that is described. One of the things, uh, I was talking to somebody this week, it's one of the downsides to doing a Bible in a year plan every year, I've done that for a long time, is that sometimes I'm just reading and I'm not going into it with expectation. I'm not going into it with uh, hoping that the Holy Spirit would speak to me. And man, it would be so easy to just read over this verse and, and completely miss some profound truths that are found here. John is saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And by the Father, he's referring to the God of all creation. I think too often we take it for granted that the God who made literally everything, time itself, has encouraged us to call him Father. I mean, that's amazing that we have been adopted in to his family, that someone like that would adopt us in. He created us, created everything. He made this perfect utopia, this beautiful, awesome, perfect world, and we ruined it. And we didn't make it very long. It's not like we had a, you know, we had a good run and we, you know, we blew it at the end. I mean, we, we didn't even get off the runway and we messed the entire thing up. Yet he loved us so much and he just was compelled to reconcile us to himself and not just make it right, but to adopt us in. Now, my guess is, everybody here, we've, we've had somebody who has hurt us in a, in a serious and painful way. We've, we've probably all got wounds from somebody. Can you imagine not just forgiving that person, but sacrificing that which is the most important to you so you could invite them into your family? I mean, that's what God did for us. And if we read this and, and we don't dwell on that for a moment, we miss what John is saying here. This is a profound truth that God didn't just reconcile us, but he invited us to be children. He adopted us. He goes on in verse two. Beloved, I mean, just that word. He just explained this. And so that descriptor, that's your identity. If you don't know this, that's your identity. If you know Jesus, you are beloved. You are deeply and desperately loved by God. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. How often do you sit and just process what your life will be like the moment Jesus appears. Have you ever sat and thought about, okay, what am I currently anxious about that will still matter when Jesus appears? That'll still matter five seconds after Jesus appears. What currently am I investing emotional, spiritual, and mental energy into which will still matter five seconds after Jesus appears? My guess is some of you are a little stressed right now because of something, 
that won't matter two bits five seconds after Jesus shows up. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be concerned about it and you shouldn't invest time into it. But, man, that's a good reality check to sometimes just pause and ask yourself that question, especially when you're getting real worked up or you're having one of those weeks where it seems like you don't have enough hours in the day to just pause and be reminded it's a good thing to work hard. It's a good thing to be disciplined. It's a good thing to put your, to invest your energy and passion into something. But whew, take a breath. Will this matter the second Jesus returns? Or how can I make what I'm doing matter five seconds after Jesus returns? See, I, I, I used to work in retail, and I could just make that a terrible job, especially in New Jersey. You do not want to work retail in New Jersey, all right? People are miserable everywhere, but in New Jersey, they're a special kind of miserable. Uh, I just love to pick on my wife. I know, she, she's going to punch me later. Uh, but I could just go and make that a job and, and work and, and just be frustrated that I'm always having to deal with cell phones and people that don't know how to use cell phones and all the fun stuff that comes with that and people telling me what, you know, a cell phone does or what it should do and all that fun stuff. Or I could make that something that matters after Jesus returns and I can invest in the people and I can be the love of God and, and, and be kingdom intentional the entire day. And I'll tell you, when, when I did that, oh man, my days were so much better. And well, so much I would, I, would, I would argue better invested into my life. So it's not just that the stuff that we do, say, I think that uh, questions like that sometimes can get us to think that our secular life and our spiritual life are separate, that somehow they should be different, and they're not. Everything we do is sacred now because we've got the Holy Spirit in us. We, we take the temple everywhere we go. Everywhere we go is holy ground because we stand there, and we have to acknowledge that. We have to learn that. And then use that to live our life in a way that will matter when Jesus returns. John is saying, one day we will be like him. In that moment when he appears. Do you understand what that means? It means all the aches and pains, all the frustrations of mortality are gone in that moment. All the things that we deal with on a physical level, it's all gone. But beyond that, we will be in perfect union with Jesus in that moment. No longer will we have to fight. And, you know, one of, one of my disciplines I'm really working on myself is, is prayer and uh, individual prayer in my life right now. I'm trying to really discipline myself more in that. And that won't even be an issue the moment Jesus returns. We will be in his presence at all times. I don't know if you've ever thought, sat, and just wondered what will it be like to be like him it'll be awesome verse three and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure notice this isn't a command this isn't saying and everyone who thus hopes in him should purify himself as he is pure this is not a command it's a reality Remember, we talked about Sherlock Holmes, powers of observation, deductive reasoning. This is part of that. John is saying, you don't have to command somebody who hopes in Jesus to purify themselves. 
You shouldn't have to chase them. You shouldn't have to beg them. You shouldn't have to uh, incentivize them to want Jesus, to purify themselves. He's saying everyone who hopes in Christ will purify themselves. When we know Christ, we desperately want to be more like him. It's a natural draw. See, when you drop something, like I almost dropped my water bottle, you don't have to force it to fall. It's not like I let go of it and go, ah, come on, fall. Gravity naturally pulls it to the ground. So when we're in relationship to Christ, we are naturally drawn to him and to his holiness. It's one of the things I never understood about, uh, you know, you know me, uh, by now, I, I think, uh, I'm not necessarily drawn in by uh, the emotional side of things. And so when someone wants to, to run away from Jesus or, or, or depart from a, a holy lifestyle, I struggle to chase them personally because I see the natural draw. I acknowledge in, my, in myself, it's like, man, how could anybody walk away from him? If they really knew him, how could you leave that? How could you walk away? from? I, now I get you make mistakes. Yeah, I get that. I do it too, but to just turn our back on Jesus and walk away, I've never, never felt the need to chase somebody in that because I have uh, verses like this. If you know Jesus, you will purify yourself. No one will have to force it on you. They won't, you won't need a, a rule structure around you to make that possible. And, and again, to me, that's why the, the whole like high church thing bothered me because the church created all these rules to do away with what was naturally supposed to happen. You don't need rules like that. Well, you do need rules, but not so many rules to suffocate people because they will naturally be drawn to want to be like Jesus, will want to be holy because he is holy. Again, remember, I know I refer to it a lot, but the bounded and centered set, it, to me, it so explains so much about the Christian life because instead of trying to fit into a box, if we're trying to, to look a certain way, act a certain way, be holy and righteous in order to fit in in a group, that's not Jesus. But when we want to be more like him just because that's the way he is, we want to be more holy, we want to be more righteous, we want to walk in the right way, not so that we fit in at Dubois Alliance Church, but because that's who Jesus is, that's when you know there's a natural draw. I had a conversation with somebody I've invested a lot of time into in the past, and he called me this week. He's like, hey man, run me through the sinner's prayer. And you may or may not agree with this, but I said no. I said, absolutely not. I don't believe in that thing. I think that's not true. I said, do you want Jesus? Yes. Do you recognize you're a sinner? That's my problem, man. I keep messing up all this. Okay. Do you want to be more like him? Yeah. Then, brother, you're already a believer. You don't, you don't need a prayer to make that happen. That natural pull, that natural draw, that is Jesus. Now, I said, you can make a confession. That's, that's certainly, and we went through that. But I said, there's no magic thing. And that the kind of, we teased that out. He thought, well, because he might not have prayed it the right way the first time. And he had done it years ago, but didn't really. I said, brother, didn't matter what you said back then. You didn't want Jesus. Or you'd have been naturally pulled, naturally drawn to him. You, you would have wanted. He's like, dude, I, I, I can't explain it. Like, I just want to tell people about him lately. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what happens when you know him. You want to tell everybody about him. No one's got to force you. No one, no one had to tell him to go out and tell people about Jesus. He, just, he thought it was weird that he wanted to. I'm like, yeah, dude, that's, that's how it goes. That's Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. 
because he's that way. We want to be that way. Verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. See, on the opposite end are people who practice sinning. This isn't about occasional sin, which happens to all of us. Uh, We all have occasional sin. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. Uh, All believers will have that. But what this is talking about is intentional, deliberate sin practices in someone's life. Just as we can't accidentally practice righteousness, we can't accidentally practice sin. I I promise you, you've never stumbled upon somebody who was like, I don't know, it was an accident. All of a sudden, I was just holy. Like, that doesn't happen. I mean, have kids. You'll learn really quick. It takes a lot of work to not be a degenerate when you have kids hanging from the ceiling and you want to do things to them to get them to stop and you want to bribe them and, and, and what you are thinking about doing. You don't accidentally be righteous. You're not accidentally sinning either. It's an intentional lifestyle, and that's what John is talking about. Both righteousness, practicing righteousness, and practicing sin take intentionality and deliberate action. And so, yeah, there, for sure, there is some things you'll come across in life where it'll be, oh, you know, ignorant. You didn't know that. And... As a Christian, the longer we spend with Jesus, the more that uh, his presence makes it very clear to us what is sin. We begin to get uncomfortable. We begin to not enjoy things anymore. Things just aren't fun that we used to do. And, when, and no one even has to tell us. We just don't want to do them anymore. And that has always, again, been one of my issues with people that take especially new believers and start hammering them with all the rules and telling them, well, you know, a good Christian doesn't do that and a good Christian doesn't do that. Man, stop. You are not the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit bring them on a journey. And sure, if they ask you, like, hey, is it wrong for me to be living with my girlfriend? We're not married. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you're a believer now. And that stuff, those conversations, if you know people who, who are just coming into a relationship with Jesus and they're just starting that journey, if you let the Holy Spirit do the work, man, it's awesome to see that happen. All of a sudden, they don't want to practice sin anymore. It becomes uh, just not enjoyable to live that lifestyle any longer. On the flip side, there's people who pray the prayer and then just go about their life and have no problems you know, practicing sin uh, and they don't have a desire to practice righteousness. For me, uh, reading Romans 7 and 8, it always gets me and I usually lead people to that and re- read Romans 7 and 8 a couple times. And what I want you to, to really seek in your own heart is to know, do you have the desire that Paul is talking about to want to do the right thing? Or are you just angry your life's not working out the way you want it to? Or do you genuinely in your heart desperately want to do what God wants? And you get frustrated and angry when you're, you resonate with Paul when he says, I just keep not doing the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. And, and do you feel that battle? Verse five. says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So this is a basic and foundational truth to the Christian movement. Some in that time especially might have tried to confuse why Jesus came or attribute a different purpose to him. Uh, We still have that today. You talk to people in different religions, talk to a Muslim or somebody like that, and they'll say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. They just don't believe in why he came. They think he was just a good prophet. 
He was just teaching about God. That was his purpose. And John's making it very clear. No, no, no. He didn't come just to teach about God. He came to take away the sins of man. That was the whole purpose. He came to die and to take our sin upon himself. And he goes on in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Again, this is not a command. This is simply a reality. This is John allowing his readers to use deductive reasoning to be able to learn who in their family and their house church and their little cell groups, who was a true believer and who was not. Now, see, taken out of context, this verse can be quite concerning. Anybody make it here this morning without sinning? You all drove here. I know some of you did something. You maybe said a word or hopefully you didn't make a gesture, but uh, you may have encountered somebody who does not share your love for driving uh, to the level of quality that you seek. Uh, we all sin. And so if you take this verse out of context, it can be like, oh man, and no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Like, ah, I sinned today. I guess I'm not abiding in Jesus. That's not what this is saying. This isn't saying also that if you sin, you've lost your salvation. That every time you sin, you lose it and you gotta get it back. I mean, I, some people live like this. They believe this, that you can lose your salvation. And I don't really know what the criteria is for that, but uh, I would... Be frustrated to think every time I sinned, I would lose my salvation. I'd have to get it back. And if you don't repent and, and you die, that you, you're, you aren't saved. And I had a professor in college. He always said, live like an Arminian, which they believe that you can lose your salvation. He said, sleep like a Calvinist when they, they believe you can't lose your salvation. So he's like, sleep secure, but live like you can lose it. Basically, like live righteously. It was funny if you're a nerd. Uh, <laughs> apparently, you guys aren't nerds like me. Uh, but so this is saying that those who can keep on sinning, that they do not know him. Those of you who know Jesus, you know what it's like to realize that you're in sin, for it to get illuminated, for the Holy Spirit to bring it to your attention. Hey, you're doing something. You're living in sin, and it's not okay. Those of you that know Jesus, you know there does not exist an option to just keep going and ignore the Holy Spirit. Some of you have tried that. We probably all have. That's real fun, isn't it? You think it's bad having a nagging parent? Try the Holy Spirit when you're trying to live outside of His will and you're in relationship with Him. And that constant pull, that constant tension that is pulling you back to Jesus as you try to walk away. See, there is a desperate desire to be right with God. I don't know if any of you have wasted some snot on a floor somewhere after you finally give in and say, okay, I get it. This is no longer an option for me, just ignoring you and trying to live my own life. There's a desperate desire to be with him. If when you read the word of God, it illuminates sin in your life and you can brush it off and keep on sinning without the burden of of the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. That's what John is saying. It's that clear. Now, some people would say, well, that's a little harsh, Pastor. I'm simply telling you what John said. He makes it very clear. If you can sin, if, if someone can make it clear to you, like, hey, man, you're living in sin. You're like, ah, it's, come on, it's 2022. Get with the times. You're probably not a Christian. 
Because there should be this desire in you to say, man, am I? I mean, let me go to the Word of God. Let me find out. Let me spend some time praying. And if the Holy Spirit says, hey, yeah, they were right. You're in sin. And you can, ah, you know what? Whatever. It's 2022. I'm going to do whatever I want. There's a good, good chance there's not a relationship with Jesus there. See, John repeats himself and expounds on what he's already said in case some didn't understand it the first time. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. I just want to again clarify the word children here are the believers that are under John's care. He consider, he loves them like a father loves children. He's not talking just to kids, but he's saying all of the believers that are part of his responsibility, he's encouraging them to not allow someone to deceive them. See, those who make a conscious, deliberate practice of righteousness are righteous as Christ is righteous. That's a clear, direct statement. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Notice the gray area that John leaves here for those who want to leave one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. If you're awake, you're realizing there is no gray area. John's not about gray areas. He's about black and white. Either you practice righteousness or you practice sin. This is not a juggling act. This is which camp have you made your tent in? Where do you reside? See, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, they, they don't have a true way that you can go back and forth on. That's not the way it works. You can't decide, well, during the week, I'm going to live for Satan, and I'm going to live for myself, and then on Sundays and maybe some other days, missions, conference, possibly, I'll live for Jesus and I'll, I'll be in his camp. That's not how it works. John is saying either you practice one or you practice the other. There's only two options here. Look at the patterns of your life and let them determine which you practice. Do you make changes when sin is pointed out through Christian brothers and sisters or through the Word of God? When sin is brought to your attention do you desperately want to make it right? And then struggle as that battle is waged against this sin, against your flesh, and as you struggle and you make mistakes and, and you know, like, man, I know I need to stop that. I know I need to be here with Jesus and I keep falling short. Do you have that? See, again, I want to remind you, the easy trick of the enemy is to, remind, is to try to get you to feel like you're a terrible person because you keep having this battle. And that battle is, is a beautiful thing because it tells you you are a believer. To constantly battle and want to, to hit the bar that Jesus has set and feel a certain way when you don't hit that bar, that's great because that means you're still on your way to Jesus. You're still making your way there because we're always going to fall short. There are areas we're always going to just miss the mark in. And we should be encouraged just when the enemy tries to tell us, oh, see how terrible of a person you are? So just remember, the object is to get back up, point ourselves toward Jesus, and keep moving. We're going to stumble again, but when we do, we repent, we get up, we start moving toward Jesus again. That's the Christian life. So do we make changes when sin is brought to our attention, either through our relationships in Christ or through the Word of God? Or do we make excuses why we're a special case 
and why God will understand. Well, yeah, you know, I've talked with many people. Like, oh, I know it's wrong to live with somebody before you marry, but man, rent prices, you know how bad they are right now? And all kinds of, we'll make up all kinds of excuses. We'll do whatever we got to to live our way because we're a special case. And that is such a lie of the enemy to convince us that God takes our circumstances into account when determining whether or not when we're, the way we're living is sin. He's made his word pretty clear, and you already know in your heart, especially if you're a believer, you know what's sin, and you know what we shouldn't be doing. To make excuses, to make it okay, you're either going to live a miserable life or you're going to be totally okay. And by totally okay, I mean you're not going to have the burden of the Holy Spirit, which means you're a Christian, which means at the end of the day, you're not okay. You're in a bad place. Verse 9. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I know it can almost seem like if you've read, if you read 1 John chapter 3 this week a couple times, you're like, man, this guy, he just keeps beating the same bush. He's like beating the horse to death and then continuing to kick it. Like, it just seems like he's reiterating over and over and over again the same truth. Why do you think that is? Because even in the first century church, you have people who think they can live however they want, get the Christian hand stamp, and they're good. And it doesn't work that way. See, uh, what, what I think we might need to understand a little bit is, if you don't know the whole sinner's prayer thing, that started in early 1900s. Before that, Christianity was an invitation to community. That's all it was. You got into community, you began to live for Jesus, no one asked you, well, what day were you saved? Now, I don't, I don't want to knock that. I don't think it's a terrible thing to have. But sometimes we focus a little bit too much on that. Because I don't know about you, but I've talked to many, many people who say, well, I prayed the prayer when I was a kid, but then I basically lived for Satan the rest of my life. But now I'm coming back. And it's like, yeah, you, were, you weren't saved, buddy. You may have said some words, but that didn't mean nothing. It was not a contract. It's not like you sign a Christian contract and, you know, it's just like a verbal agreement between you and God. You go do whatever you want and as long as you come back sometime before you die, everything's all good and gravy. It's not how it works. See, before it was always an invitation to community. That's what Christianity has always been. Hey, why don't you join us? Become part of our family and we'll, we'll live to serve him together. That's what it was. And as you engaged in community it became pretty evident that certain sins in your life and you'd have people who not just uh, to be judgmental but because they loved you they would help you to root that stuff out and they would pray with you and they'd walk with you and that's what christianity was it wasn't about a moment it was about a lifestyle it was about a whole journey that we would you, know, you would engage in for the rest of your life those born of god cannot handle the weight on their soul to keep on sinning, John is saying. Again, a reality, not a command. Furthermore, there is no desire to keep on sinning for those born of God. That's another thing we have to note as we read this. John is saying, there's not even a desire to make an excuse here. For, a, for somebody who knows God, you don't want to make excuses. You don't want to make it okay. You want to figure out how to get your life right. That's a believer the best thing that we can do for a true brother or sister in Christ is to show them their sin through the word so they can grow. Again, not in a judgmental way, not 
chasing, you know, get, trying to get ahead of the Holy Spirit and tell them all the things that they're doing wrong. But as we're in relationship with people, as it becomes evident God has his hand on something in their life, as God's illuminating something to them, as we journey with them through that, we, through the word of God, give them godly counsel that points them to Jesus to show them their sin. That's the best thing we can do for somebody who knows Jesus. If some of you have those friends who you know will tell you when you're straying off the path, and that is a beautiful and a sweet thing for a believer to have, somebody that will do that. See, those born of God are grateful when their sin is exposed. Those born in sin are resentful when their sin is exposed. How dare you? See, if you, if you desperately want to know Jesus more, why would you ever be resentful when someone pointed out something that's keeping you from being close to him? If they pointed out something that you didn't see yourself. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, here's this You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to succeed in this deductive reasoning that John is laying out here for us. This is like Sherlock Holmes 101 right here. This is the entry-level Sherlock Holmes. He's saying, by this, it is evident. He's saying it's clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. See, John's also bringing back another theme from chapter 2 here. To claim we love God but have hatred toward a brother or sister, John is saying it's a lie. He's saying the love of God and the hatred of somebody else cannot coexist. That's not an option anymore. I don't believe it's our place to judge people. I don't think it's our goal to walk around and say, "Uh, Christian, not a Christian, Christian, not a Christian, Christian. That's not the point of what John is saying here. Again, uh, this is John writing to a multitude of house churches, groups that met in smaller groups. I mean, could be as small as five, could be the largest, I think, uh, maybe 30 people that could fit in a home of that time. If they were really wealthy, they had a big home, they could fit 30. So this is smaller groups of people who are being infiltrated by false teachers, by people who are trying to, to uh, subvert the way and trying to, to engage in false teaching and try to lead God's people astray. He's, he's giving them a tool to utilize so they don't feel like some of us do with like, well, I know this person's a horrible person and they're a cancer to everybody around them, but we, we should be kind to them and still let them hear. It's like, no, no, no. And the Bible's pretty clear on often occasions, like, no, kick that person out. Get them out of there. They're a cancer. They call them a yeast, a, a, a poison. Sometimes they're just people like that and we need to move them because they don't have the kingdom of God as an interest. They have themselves on the throne. And so there are times when John, and John is making it clear here, there are some people that are just born of the devil. They don't want God. And this is how you can tell that. This is how it becomes evident if you want to know that. When asking yourself if someone you know is a Christian, John gives some pretty simple criteria to look at. And I know this is going to hit home for some of us because some of us have family, we have children, we have close family members who we really want to believe are Christians 
But if we use John's deductive reasoning here, it becomes pretty clear they are not. He gives us pretty simple. Do they practice righteousness? Not do they do good things. Do they give to a charity? That's not what John's saying. Do they practice righteousness? Do they constantly, in season and out of season, seek to be right with God? And another one, do they have hatred toward anyone in their heart? I I don't know about you, but I know some people who say they love Jesus, they go to church, but man, if you bring up somebody, that one person, oh, the venom that will come out. John is saying, that can't coexist with the Spirit of God. And if you think it can, I have a little video. uh, Somebody I've always thought is kind of the epitome of forgiveness because many of you, I doubt, have a story like hers uh, that she is able to forgive. So just watch this real quick and ask yourself if it's still okay to have hatred in your heart. done but then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness and Fräulein Tambom will you forgive me and I could not I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5, and thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either, but he can. To me, such a powerful story of God's forgiveness. Somebody who was subjected to horrors we only read about in a book. We know nothing about, and yet in that moment, she came face to face with the reality she can't forgive. 
I don't know if you've ever been face-to-face with that reality yourself. Someone's hurt you so deeply or something has happened which you realized, I can only hate this person. I don't have it in my heart, but the Spirit of God made it clear that wasn't an option. And so you were left with the only option, which is to lean into Him. And you realize, man, that's probably what I should have done from the beginning. And that is what John is talking about here. He's not saying that nobody's ever going to hurt you to the point where you're going to want to hate them more than forgive them. That is not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that there, there, is, there becomes this love that is born in us as a believer that cannot coexist with hate. And so even when a circumstance brings it about that hate is the only option, John is saying that's the point, is that we don't lean into our strength and lean into our abilities or lean into the fruits of us, but we lean into the fruits of the Spirit. That is the key to a Christian's life, is to lean heavily and fall into the arms of Jesus, often recognizing I have no power. And I just don't have the strength to do this anymore. What can we learn from the first half of this chapter? Well, if someone used deductive reasoning in your life to to determine if you were a child of God. Again, notice John has nothing to say about church attendance, about how much you've put into a tithing plate at one point in your life. It has nothing to do with any of that. What would their observations lead them to believe? As they look at the way you live your life, as they look at the way you make decisions, as they look at how you've been confronted with your own sin in the past and your reaction to that, if someone could listen in on the thoughts in your mind as you think about your sin, is it, man, I desperately want to know him more? Or is it, man, how can I manage my behavior to a degree where I can still have my fun but I can still at least look like I'm a Christian. What would their deductive reasoning lead them to? We can say that nobody's able to judge us, but what would someone deduce by looking at how you live your life? I think questions for all of us is how will we practice righteousness this week? I I like that idea of practicing righteousness and because of what John says in this chapter he says you know we're, we're not who we're going to be when Jesus shows up we're going to be a whole new thing and, and and I love the idea because it's like okay we won't we won't be practicing righteousness anymore it'll be game day we will be righteous up until then we just practice it so how will we practice righteousness this week what will you do the next time your sin is pointed out How will you respond in that moment when it becomes evident that somebody else has acknowledged or recognized sin in your life? Will you feel blessed or will you defend yourself and come up with all the reasons why your special case is okay and why the Word of God doesn't apply to your special circumstance? My encouragement to you, practice righteousness. Live for Him. Do something about it If you acknowledge this morning there isn't some innate desire in you to make him known, 
If there's no innate desire in you to be righteous, to live righteously, it doesn't matter how many times you've attended church, it doesn't matter how many times you've read your Bible through, it doesn't matter how many verses you have memorized, it doesn't matter your title in the church. If there is not a desperate, deep desire in you to live righteously, that's a problem that John says is an easy deductive reasoning. You are not a believer. Despite all the other things in your life that may point toward it, he says, if you don't practice righteousness, you just, you aren't. So I encourage you, do something about that this week if that's the case. Don't let it go another day. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, for the truths that are found in it. Lord, I thank you for John and the way he writes in such a black and white way that makes it so clear there are people who practice righteousness and they are the children of God. And there are those who don't and they are not. Lord, I pray that we would ask seriously first if we ourselves have that desire for righteousness. And then, Lord, we would be honest with the people around us with those who we try to convince ourselves are believers and acknowledge that some just aren't. And we would do something about it. Lord, we would pray desperately for them to have a desire for righteousness, to have an encounter with you which makes it so clear and evident that you are the way. You are what will free them from the sin of their life. Lord, I pray as we live our life this week, we would practice righteousness in a way that brings joy and honor to your, to your name. And Lord, like we talked about last week, that we would live in such a way that if you showed up this week, we would be able to stand before you in confidence, knowing we were giving you our everything. Lord, bless us as we go out. Would we be your children who make you known everywhere we go? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I hope you have a great week. I hope you can join us for our fall festival down in the fellowship hall. Head on over. It's going to be a great time.